Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kaligan and another phenomenal guest today. It is the final episode we're recording here, January 2023. We're hot off a big debate, a bit not a bit uh, unexpected and last minute with Haas, Infrared Haas, the MAGA communists. And uh, today we are joined by Momchilo Noveski, a friend of mine and uh, a content creator who's done some good work against this stuff. Uh, he'll introduce himself in a second. Dimitri, how are you? I'm doing very well. It's uh, again, it's been a super eventful week, and even um, you know, we've been very active on Twitter Spaces as well as some of the content we've been releasing on Substack. So make sure to check that out. Yeah, just super active everywhere, and of course, uh, this episode is packed with information for you guys. So just sit tight, you know, uh, enjoy, put on your comfortable headset, and uh, you just relax and kind of take it all in. Oh yeah, my name is Momchilo. I make a, I have YouTube videos that I make on my channel called Momchilo Noveski. Also, I write for a uh on my friend's Substack as well. I have some articles there. Yeah, we'll have all the links to those. He's got some great video, a really great video against Haas that's probably the best made, like not live stream, just like pre-made content on, on the subject matter on YouTube, I would say right now, as well as some good articles with his buddy Zoltanis on the subject. But yeah, if you couldn't tell already, this is going to be this first part of the show. We're going to talk about the news. We'll have a timestamp below for those that want to hear that first. But now we're going to be getting into kind of our foray into the debate sphere against – it's a bit of a broad spectrum, but the MAGA communist, the quote-unquote based communist, the infrared collective, as their YouTube and Twitter handles all say, the this this group of people online that are – believe that communism is the number one thing you can do you, you that the number one belief that you can adopt to fight globalism and to be based and preserve tradition of all things and we of course as orthodox christians think that is extremely silly and we had a debate it was on twitter spaces we'll have some of this linked below it got heated at some points there was a lot of controversial things discussed but i thought it was very interesting and i think frankly we did a pretty good job articulating our position the three of us here so uh, I don't know who wants to go first. Maybe I'll let Dimitri talk for a few minutes and then Momchilo kind of let us know where you think kind of where you encountered Haas first and where you kind of think he's gone wrong. I suppose I'll just ease everybody into the conversation uh, in terms of listeners. So essentially a, a couple of days ago, myself, Conrad and Momchilo, um, we all participated in a more or less a discussion with a a new phenomenon of content creator, at least online in the political sphere, it's what you would call a MAGA communist. And some of you may think, well, what would be, what would constitute MAGA communism? And essentially we'll be discussing that for the next hour or so here um, on this podcast. And so we had a discussion of this MAGA communist named Infrared Haas. So Haas is probably one of the foremost, um, I would say, ideologues of this particular new movement they have online. And this particular branch of communism or this deviation of communism, he, uh, it would take a more conservative leaning. And so essentially we were, we were discussing with him what would be the particular, I guess, intersections. Where would MAGA communism and Orthodox Christianity, or at least the Orthodox Christian worldview, which myself, Conrad and Momchilo all espouse, how would that differ? Um, where would that maybe intersect? But mostly the differences and exactly why maybe the views of the World War Now hosts would maybe, um, be against some of the positions of the uh, MAGA communists, which, you know, apparently they're gaining steam online, especially in the Twitter sphere. So that's essentially, that was the crux of the discussion. Now it is online. The discussion was, went for about two and a half hours. So as you can imagine, uh, it, we did get stuck in a few details and we were kind of churning through and did get quite heated by the end, but we did get through some pretty key issues and 
um, we came to some pretty uh, pretty interesting revelations about exactly what MAGA communism is, and here we are to discuss that. So my history with Hawes, um, so my friend uh, that I write the Substack with Zoltanis, he had debated him some years ago, um, basically trying to, when he was doing his, when he kind of was a lot smaller, I guess you could say, and he was trying to say, like, oh, look, we have a lot more in common than you think, or maybe we could do something here, and Hawes was like, no, 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 we can't do this. You know, he was trying to create like a sort of a common allies are saying, you know, we should stop trying to attack us, you know, the more sort of nationalistic side of things, instead of just focus on liberalism or whatever. And so then a couple, then a year later after that debate, um, I saw that he was doing, he was calling himself a um, conservative or a traditionalist. He says that communists are actually the most conservative and the most traditionalist of all people currently alive now. But this is also the guy who says that he's a mecha tanky um, and also the guy who's claimed that he's a, a Stalinist libertarian. So I don't know how he squares those, but I'll leave I'll leave that there. Um, and then, so I saw some of his videos that he produced of him and the the Infrared Collective, as they're called as they call themselves. Um, and Bahaz is like the guy who basically runs it. And he's the like the sort of personality behind it all, very personality driven. And oh yes, I watched some of his videos, um, and then I saw that this is not what Marxism is actually about. Like not actually what Marx, Engels, Lenin, the actual sort of theoreticians of Marxism were about. And I saw how much from actual like Marxism, I guess you could say. And so I did, I guess, an critique of his uh, ideology, both. There's an article that we have written uh, called Communism is Not Conservative. Um, that It's really in-depth, and it, there's like a lot of quotes like towards the end, just sort of um, about all the way that Marx, Engels, Lenin, all primary sources about how they viewed religion and how they viewed nat- nationalism and how they viewed like sort of these uh, non-class collectivist identities, and they're very hostile towards it. And then as well, I made a, a, another video basically um, debunking some of his videos, going line by line, showing that as well. No, we're going to be sure to link all those below. It's the really good reads, good watches. But that's a good place to start, I think, uh, Momchilo. Haas made a lot of claims. He briefly referenced Ganon. Of course, his metaphysics were obviously the most lacking part of his kind of side of the debate. It was made pretty clear to the audience. And I'm not even saying that to dig at him. He is admittedly not as well educated and read on either orthodoxy or even a lot of Muslim metaphysics in his own admission. But when it comes to his kind of citing of these random figures, talking about the appreciation for the sublime and how communism actually supposedly preserves, is able to preserve the, the key essence of religion, I think it's key. He made that distinction, and we referenced his friend who had been speaking earlier, had a very humanistic perspective on religion. Momchilo, what do you think... Is where do you think they're going wrong there, and how do you think they're directly contradicting communism? Sure. So I just want to say I'm not a communist. I'm going to sort of critique, but I'm going to critique them from what I think is the actual communist perspective to show their internal um, how they are not internally consistent. But I just want to make clear I'm not an actual communist. So, so if you actually look what people like Marx said about religion, people like Engels said about religion, even people like Lenin said about religion. For instance, Lenin, in his his 1905 pamphlet, I believe it's called uh, Christianity and Socialism, he says that that religion is this sort of parochial thing that's holding down the peasant and the proletariat from, you know, developing this consciousness and he recommends actually that the party members or that the the the, uh, the 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 bolsheviks at that time or the the communist party in russia at the time that they you know give the workers atheistic material from france like enlightenment atheistic material these are his words you know they give them these pamphlets and whatnot so that they you know don't have the religion so it's much easier to develop a sort of class consciousness and then um as well as 
their view of religion. So Hawes tries to, in infrared in general, they try to say that, oh, you know, communism is compatible with, um, you know, Christianity with religion. However, if you see the way that these actual Marxist, Marxist theoreticians talk about religion, the best that you will get the very best that you'll get is maybe a, a humanistic understanding of religion where they'll say that, oh, yes, religion is beautiful. You get these beautiful cathedrals, these beautiful traditions, these beautiful churches, you know, all the beautiful rituals, all this stuff. However, this is all humans made this and it's all a human design. Isn't it so beautiful that humans were able to make this right? So they make it very humanistic. They don't understand that. No, no, no. This religion that we have, we didn't make it right. It's like God gave it to us and we just sort of participate in this reality. So that's like really the best that you're going to get. And then with regards to um, – I, mean, I, I can go more just talking about the various contradictions that they make. But, yeah, the, these theorists, Marx, Engels, Lenin, etc., they were not whatsoever in favor of, uh, of nationalism or any sort of traditionalism. In fact, they want to overturn tradition. You know, Marx in his – the Communist Manifesto, he has that famous line saying that, you know, all that is sacred is profaned. All that is solid melts into air. And for and I would somewhat agree, and that's Marx talking about capitalism. I would actually agree with Marx about that's what capitalism does. However, when Marx writes that, he's very giddy about that because then he then talks later how you can actually then use that because capitalism is over, you know, destroying all tradition, making everything solid into air, making everything sacred, profane. Communists are then able to come in and through their dialectic, they're able then to you know advance us to the next stage of history due to capitalism, um, you know, making everything. Uh, you know, just kind of destroying all the old structures, and then they're able to come in with their more um, with their Marxism, with their communism. Um, so they see that very giddily. They're very happy to say that. Um, whereas we, of course, you know, we would agree that capitalism does that. However, we think this is one of the bad things about capitalism, but they view that as one of the good things of capitalism. However, it seems like Hawes doesn't really take that up. He doesn't take up that actual like sort of orthodox Marxist line of reasoning up. He says, "Oh no, actually, we can have communist conservatism." And one thing that they do, which is very – it's very – you see this what they do. For instance, if you bring up to them uh, Marx, Engels, and what they viewed about uh, religion, uh, Haas will say – and I've seen him say this before. I heard him say this before when I brought this up to him in some of my interactions with him. He's like, oh, yes, I agree that Marx and Engels are wrong about religion here, that they had a very immature or not fully developed view. But however, we, when we look at communism in actuality, what we see is that they do have this sort of respect for religion. So even if that is true, which I think historically that's not really the case, you look at the um, the iconoclasm of Mao, you look at what happened, all the new martyrs of the Soviet uh, from the Soviet era, and all these things. I don't think that's historically true. But even if that's even if for the sake of argument, if it's historically true, ideologically, it seems like Haas has no way to ground what communism actually is. He doesn't because uh, communism is whatever communists do. So it becomes a circular definition of communism is just whatever commun whatever people who describe themselves as communists do. However, he only does that to people that he likes. So, for instance, he doesn't think Khrushchev, who called himself a communist, who was a part of the Communist Party, was the premier of the Communist Party and led the Soviet Union, he would not be considered a communist, even though he is a subscribed communist doing. However, you know, for some reason, he doesn't that as real communism. Or when he looks to towards the West. Um, and it sees like, you know, the sort of stereotypical image of the sort of blue haired, you know, nose piercing um, communist or self-described communist. He will he will also not view them as real communist because that's not com for, because he doesn't like them. Right. Because he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, it's bad aesthetics. You know, it's not what real communism is. So he really has no way to ground his definition of communism or Marxism. And even if you read some of his Substack articles, he talks about um 
for instance, he talks about Maoism. There's this idea of the infinity within it, this idea that it's infinite. It can be anything and everything. So there's, there seems to be no real grounding to what his actual communism is. And whenever you point out things in Marx that he doesn't like, he says, oh, well, well, we have communists, we real communists, as we've seen actually have developed past that, and we've seen what real communism actually is. So there's no means of grounding anything that he's talking about whatsoever. Much like how he tried to slander us by citing the deficiencies of perhaps our you know, Peter the Great, we, we were, unlike him, he's like, oh, that wasn't real communist to me. He was the real czar. He may have made some mistakes, but it was still glorious. That was, he tried to bring all that up with us, but Dimitri, I'll let you go ahead. Yeah. So essentially what I'm hearing you say, Momchalo, is at the end of the day, the authority on communism seems to be actually the actual, you know, ideologues of the, of this particular branch of communism itself. So it seems like uh, in some ways, Haas himself and Jason Hinkle, I mean, to name just two of the movers of the particular movement in particular, they do become the new, uh, I guess, reviewers of truth. And they are the new censors who enable exactly what comes into their movement. And at this point in time, it does seem like they are removing the need for atheism, which made itself you know, familiar to all communist movements around the world. So as you said, almost all communist movements historically have been atheistic and by all i mean over the 20th century those who actually those movements which actually came came to power in romania in in serbia in russia in china as well as i'm sure in north korea and cuba have all you know essentially been theoretically uh you know somewhat pure in the marxist sense that they would be against they would go against religion and go against some of these uh things they would actually ascribe as to corrupt religions which were corrupted by capitalism which was one of the talking points in the debate actually where he mentioned that hey your orthodox christian church as well was corrupted by capitalism in its own sense and uh, he did kind of allude to that but more so in his written text but in the debate it did come up that hey even the church was somewhat corrupted by capitalism so it needed to be cleansed by you know the flames of communism which i think is slightly absurd and you know, very sacrilegious shall we say but nevertheless uh he did kind of push that angle just slightly on us and I would say that it does seem like, yeah, infrared as well as Jackson Hinkle, some of these movers, as you mentioned, they are the they they are the last line. So they are the the popes of the religion. They do determine what what goes into maggot communism and whatever um, whatever somebody you know somebody from the left, for example, a Hassan Pike or any of these leftist Marxists say you know, they claim, well, LGBTQ rights are an essential you know essential sort of tenant and element of Marxism, and but. For MAGA communists, no, Jackson Hinkle and in particular Haas, they, they confirmed that no, as the leaders of the movement, they will not let that particular element enter into their version of communism. So yeah, at the end of the day, it does seem like the new, they are the new Lenins and Stalins of this, uh, of this particular branch. And while also rejecting what their, I suppose, what their forefathers, what their predecessors preached quite um, vehemently, especially on the part of uh, Lenin, you know, preached militant atheism and and they claim they even have the audacity to claim that lenin and marx were wrong in those particular instances and they don't really explain why besides the fact that hey religion had all these positive traits but many things are positive traits i can we can claim as non-christians for example that hey lgbtq traits may may be positive to society you know as hassan parker claims and some of the pushes of left-wing marxism so just wanted to ask you about that mom because i think that was the large element of the debate it was the fact that hey communism was anti-religious you know kind of from the get-go and 
myself and Conrad, we want just wanted to ask how exactly has um, tried to avoid this particular conundrum, and it doesn't seem like we received a satisfying answer. So even in the discussion that we had when we brought up, um, I think I forget how exactly it went, but we talked about in the early Soviet Union, like under like Lenin, a lot of or in the early Stalin period as well. There was a lot of anti-religious sentiment, like the League of Militant Atheists and uh, all these other groups. And Haas admitted to all of this. And he's like, yes, you know, at the but the way he does it, it's very um, sneaky what he does, right? Because he says that oh no, the, he says that the the the, the anti the anti Christian sentiments, the militant atheist sentiments, was only the younger, um, lower ranking members of the party. However, when it comes to um, you know, with Stalin and Lenin, they were against this in actuality. And there was just like this sort of excess of these sort of, it's a, there's this revolutionary spirit going on. And you just had these young people who were very, um, you know, full of excess. And he says, yes, they went too far and they shouldn't have done that. But, you know, in actuality, Stalin and the party were actually against this. Trust me, bro. And there's no real like source for that whatsoever. No, it's true. And I think, and we tried our best to, this was before it got that heated to cite the consensus of the church, talk about, the the royal martyrs and how important canonization is to us. And that brings me to what I want to talk to you about a bit more, Mamchalo. And that was kind of what started the discussion was one of Haas's kind of sycophants was talking to us and couldn't really keep up. So he had to get big brother Haas to come kind of take over. And that's really what started the discussion. And the whole point, the whole time Haas failed to present to me a consistent epistemology, whereas we, I think, fairly clearly presented how our claims, even our quote-unquote historical evidence for our authority, is also has epistemic weight because of what we would both say presuppositional apologetics and, and Christian apologetics, as well as the church as a pillar and foundation of truth. And Haas didn't seem to want to accept that at all, despite that we made it very clear. And then we have some of his followers expressing how dialectical materialism and its view of history is more sound of an epistemology than submitting to the Church of Christ and then all of the consistent philosophical arguments that come with with theism and trinitarianism so Bamtolo, i'm curious as to what you think about the like how the dialectical materialist view of history and epistemology how they can somehow claim that is consistent with a christian or a traditionalist ethic of any kind it's not and even if you look into for instance uh Lenin's uh, logical empiricism and material criticism, where it's a very like sort of insider debate that he's doing. He's going against like Ernst Bloch um, and other Marxist neo-Kantians um, that Lenin's going after. And in there, Lenin makes the argument that the mind is material itself, like everything is material, and that there's no need for like spirituality or religion because everything is material. And if it's not really worth like the only, and then. You know, epistemological sort of framework to really work in that would say it's good because, as I said, not only are there problems with like authority in the sense like where does the authority of the text or the authority of meaning come from with communism, it's really just whatever Hawes and the infrared collective say, right? So they have no reason for why, um, you know, Deng Xiaoping, for instance, they like Deng Xiaoping and they like, you know, they like Xi Jinping, they like the current Chinese government. Um, however, even though the fact that they are very revisionist, so to speak, against Maoism, against um, aspects of Mao, they'll still use his image in some ways, but you're not really allowed to defend um, the Great Leap Forward or parts of the Cultural Revolution. You can't really defend those things in current. Um, so in, in current China, they're very um, they they respect Mao to an extent. However, they are anti-Maoist in in essence, and and Haas is okay with that. However, when it comes to somebody like Khrushchev, as we talked about, um, even though Khrushchev and Deng Xiaoping um, were 
um, both against Mao and Stalin, respectively. Um, they're not cool with Khrushchev, but they're okay with Deng Xiaoping and the people that come in there afterwards. Um, and then another thing that we saw in the debate was that um, they had no base. Haas kept talking about he kept appealing to our Christian sense of the dignity from man. So, you know, as Orthodox Christians, we believe that man is made in the image of God, and therefore there is this inherent dignity in man. Um, but there doesn't in Marxism, there's no way that they can ground the dignity of man in. There's no way that they can say, oh, yes, man is grounded. Man has dignity because X, Y, Z. They just say man has dignity because man has dignity. And they reduce, there's that famous line, and um, I think it's the preface to Marx's critique of the uh, of Hegel's philosophy of um, Hegel's philosophy. And in it, he says, to be radical is to go to the root of things, but, the, but for the root of man, it is man. So that's a circular justification for dignified for justifying the dignity of man. So yeah, they really no good epistemology whatsoever, not only with regards to authority, but also just grounding basic things like where do you get the dignity of man from? And then one thing that's very insidious that they do with regards to our Christianity, and especially you know us who believe in a presuppositional apologetic, is that they say that first we can take Marxism and accept dialectical materialism, and then we can find Christianity, instead of saying that we have to have Christianity before we can find anything else. And that's the most insidious part to me. No, I completely agree. And in many ways uh Haas talked about from the epistemological perspective Haas was trying to get on our level and prove how we couldn't prove from our perspective that communism was bad and this is after ignoring the anathemas ignoring all the citations of saints that we were posting ignoring I'm posting St Gabriel of Georgia burning a picture of Lenin and remember all of this literally all of this started when Dimitri posted a picture of Lenin with a with a uh, pentagram on his head saying he was the father of Ukraine which is true and just straight from Putin and in that regard, Haas was incapable of even grasping the obvious – like we explained to him ecumenical councils, consensus patrum, and even a few other basic epistemological stopping points within our program. And he refused to accept that and thought that a single citation of, archbi- of an archbishop somewhat being nice to communism in the Khrushchev era was enough for us to be inconsistent in denouncing communism. I want to hear Dimitri's thoughts on that, and then we'll get back to Mobchilo. Yeah, so what I'm hearing you guys say is that uh, you've probably noticed, and just as I have, that essentially Haz was attempting to disprove our stance, whereas not even he didn't even try to epistemologically ground his particular argument, and so he just kind of said these, uh, you know, kind of floating communist terms. Which is well, he didn't exactly say we pick and choose from different communist theorists, but that's essentially what he implied. He said, well, we're not going to pick and choose atheism as a, you know, as Momchilo. Added, and we're just going to pick and choose from these particular communist leaders in China and from Lenin. And when they're going to take Trotsky at all, notice Trotsky wasn't mentioned, even though he was a huge ideologue of communism in the Soviet Union. So he was completely ignored. And the reasons weren't presented exactly why. Whereas from our perspective, especially Conrad made it very clear that orthodox epistemology, of course, comes from, you know, we can even you know, succinctly summarize it into three sources, the gospel, orthodox tradition, and of course, through the prism of consensus patron, exactly what do what does the majority or you know what what is the general opinion, the consensus of the church fathers, and this is what we base essentially um, our epistemology on, and we made that very clear. We kind of 
the ball was in our court. We bounced it back to Haas, and of course, we bounced it very well in terms of in terms of we were willing to answer any questions regarding our particular way of evidencing and providing sound argumentation, and even to the point where I think we made a few defenses of Russian as well as Byzantine or even Christian uh, Christian theory of politics, especially you know going into Russian history, some really you know deep deep and perhaps even dark details, which we had to flush out because has began, you know, kind of gish galloping and attacking these various points of uh, Orthodox Christian history, especially that of the revolution and some some points about the Romanov dynasty, trying to sort of catch us off guard. Oh, what about this? What about that? Whereas we kind of, uh, we, we kind of just wanted to provide clarity to the listeners because at this point, the discussion didn't really devolve into a debate so to speak, without a moderator. So we were just kind of rebutting and uh, clarifying every single point he was making. And I think that's when we got got a little bit caught out, or at least he he came into it thinking it was a debate and he needed to gish gallop, provide all of these facts we needed to disprove, whereas his position wasn't even clearly stated. Essentially, he kind of got away with just uh, having this blank assumption um, that, hey, this is mega communism because I say so. And I, th- I think we kind of missed the chance to even call him out on it, but it is very clear for listeners, and if, if people go listen back that l- listen back to the actual uh, tape recording of the uh, of the entire discourse, that hey, has actually didn't make it clear why MAGA communism uh, is is pro-religion, why it even allows for religion. So they won't find the justification there, and I think any uh, astute listener would kind of make sense of that. So has actually made him, gave himself a huge disservice, whereas his perspective isn't very clear in the recording as well as in the actual live debate. I don't think the listeners understood exactly why they should trust mega-communism more than Orthodox Christianity when it came to, say, religious and wholesome conservative politics, because, hey, his position wasn't justified. What was it grounded on besides simply rhetorical statements of sorts it seems like so if you watch some of his videos that he has on youtube i haven't watched them in a while but one thing that he tries to do is says that you know communism um and he he, he gives some cherry pick quotations from the sort of uh, founders of marxism um you know communism is supposed to go towards the people the people like as they are like that's one of the things like oh we're, we're dealing with the people like as they are we're dealing with their actual material conditions and um, so that's well, that's I guess like that's one way they're able to sort of say oh you know, mega communism or you know communism can be conservative, but then they don't take the extra step. So while that is true for like uh, one good example um, you can think of that the communists did was during the sort of like uh, 19th century when they were kind of in their heyday so to speak, they Marxist groups so like drinking Marxist groups, right? So they would have both of these things, and they would always have, um, you know, they would have, um, you know, Catholic groups, Protestant groups. They'd have all these like, sort of like front groups that they could have. So we can get the Protestant workers, we can get the Catholic workers, we can get the, you know, the pro-drinking worker, we can get the anti-drinking workers, and they would all do that. But the the goal of that, which is the part that Haas leaves out, is so that we can have this sort of total um, um, global global sort of ideology where those things don't matter anymore and the only thing that matters is this sort of class consciousness that matters where there is no more nationalities there's no more religion there is no more of these things that are that you know sort of that as the marxists would you know derisively separate mankind all those things are totally wiped out so the purpose of going towards the people as they are is that you can get rid of those things that you have to appeal to them to so that way that you only have this sort of mass of proletariats who have a collective class consciousness 
and they're led by their class consciousness and not led by any religion. And that goes again to this idea that it's insidious because they say that communism brings us the truth of religion, not that religion brings us the truth of whether or not. So their idea is that communism, we have to have communism first, and then it will tell us if religion is true or not. Not the opposite, which we say is that you know religion, our religion, Orthodox Christianity, is true due to the impossibility of the contrary. And then this uh, grounds our moral epistemology and allows us to judge everything else from this starting point, which is true due to the impossibility of the contrary and basic, you know, presuppositionalism. No, it's true. And for those that aren't familiar, we recommend looking up uh, David Bonson and Jay Dyer's explication of those ideas on, yeah, David Bonson's his son. My bad. You're right. Greg is the, is the, is the one who's no longer with us, but that we, we, we ground our, uh, our epistemology in a lot of their words. And we believe that many of the church fathers and even ancient philosophers were hinting at and making proto versions of presuppositional apologetics back in the day. But in many ways, in backing up our epistemology, we enforce the idea of the catacomb and the third Rome and the institution of the Christian emperor. And Momchilo and others, we appeal to Dugan in many ways, who we know Haas respects, and we have some mutual ground there. We tried to kind of make this clear to him. And I really, and Dimitri, explained in many ways, like the sacramental nature of this, trying to, I don't think we could have made it any clearer that that sacramental nature being bridged with our epistemology in the church and our our, our religion in that was something that was unclear to him to then understand why the anathemas against communism make it untenable for our position. He, I think, was being willfully ignorant of the pretty basic points we were making connecting our exegesis there. And so I'm wondering, from either of you, I'll let Dimitri maybe go first, what what was Haas kind of missing about Russia specifically and the Catacomb and how that wasn't truly fulfilled in the Soviet Union? Well, I think on the first point regarding the sacredness of the Russian ruler, so the monarch in Russia was not just considered a secular dictator, which, uh, you know, he had all, he had essentially dictatorial powers that is any, any Western, you know, even the, you know, the same sort of powers that Stalin would have, maybe even more technically speaking, because he wasn't bound by any laws until 1905, 1906 when the, um, unfortunate document of the Russian constitution was drafted uh, by Freemasons, shall we say, but es- essentially the Tsar in Russia was not bound essentially by any legal documents and has kind of implied that, hey, look, well, you know, uh, how do you guys make sense of this? Like what? And we explained it from the ground up. We said, look, in our epistemology, in our worldview, in our Orthodox Christian tra- tradition, the emperors and tsars are actually not bound by any legal documents. They're not supposed to be. The only, the only thing Orthodox rulers are bound by is ch- Orthodox Church tradition one and two, the gospel. So they do have to follow their Orthodox Christian conscience. Uh, uh, conscience, and this, of course, implies the fact that they actually attend church and. They go to confession and they actually participate in the life of the church, including, of course, speaking to notable bishops, their own priest, confessor, monks, clergy, etc., which, of course, is symphonia, which we also explained to has very clearly kind of from the ground up because he really didn't understand the fact that, hey, monarchy is an essential element of orthodoxy, even more so than certain types of vestments. And, you know, it's not even decorative in the fact that it exists in the church. It has existed in the orthodox Christian tradition prior to the um, emergence of even the ranks of metropolitans and patriarchs. So the the rank of an orthodox emperor, the 
even some of the traditions around the emperor actually participating and communing in the altar, things of that, that nature. They, they have existed from centuries before even the first patriarchs emerged onto the scene. And as Orthodox tradition kind of um, became more enriched by these, by, by, by sort of the, by these additions, such as, you know, we've enriched our, um, our sort of liturgical tradition in, in all nations, including you know, including the way we sing, the way we put up candles, uh, you know, exactly how long the liturgy would be as these adjustments were made over time. And of course, uh, you know, in the context of each particular nation and, you know, liturgies were drafted by saints such as St. John Chrysostom. We made it clear to, to Hazus especially that, hey, look, Orthodox monarchy and the Orthodox monarchist theory kind of, uh, it, it is one and the same. It is part of that tradition. And, and he really couldn't grasp it. He said, well, the Romanovs must have been some outside thing, like this reverence for the monarchs of Russia, this reverence for the Tsars and Emperors. Like, surely Peter the Great somehow broke off with all this. And no, we kind of explained it. No, Peter the Great, yes, he made big mistakes. No, he isn't a saint in our church, but he was Orthodox Christian until the end. Not a good Orthodox Christian. Obviously, he's made mistakes. I'm not one to judge, uh, you know, him in particular. So he was an Orthodox Christian until the end, and he had a priest by his bedside as he passed away. So Paz really wasn't aware of this. In fact, uh, I don't think he's read any of the historical documents relating to Peter the Great's time. I think he's kind of gathered his opinion from Alexander Dugan's writings, which Alexander Dugan made it very clear that he wasn't a historian either. So Haz was basically pushing all these opinions about Russian monarchy onto onto us, kind of saying, well, can you guys explain this? Uh, none of this seems to align with religion or orthodoxy. And we were claiming that, yes, actually, most of these things do align, and, and almost everything can be explained within our tradition, frankly. Uh, and, of course, this was, I think, the, the main... At least this took up a good portion, maybe 45 to 50 minutes of the discussion of, of the actual debate was regarding uh, Russia's history and the role of the monarch in the in the church, was, which me and Conrad love speaking about. And, you know, we've done a lot of reading and research into it. So this, this in particular, I think we were very happy to discuss it for hours on end, if Haas would allow. But he eventually kind of sidelined because he said, hey, wait, did, wait, these guys actually know everything from A to Z. Um, how I need to change the subject real quick because I can't catch these guys out on any of these points and look um i can't actually make a crude comparison between peter the great who communed in the in the altar right when the when his when his priest and bishop allowed him uh in comparison to maybe a lenin and a stalin like you know how some crudely compare say peter the great the great reformer so to speak to stalin or a lenin who also reformed society it's like okay these two you cannot compare and Thank, thank God he didn't compare you know anyone to Ivan the Terrible, who you know Ivan the Fourth was extremely pious in his life, even more so than Peter, and definitely more Orthodox than either Lenin or Stalin. So fortunately, that analogy was not made, so we didn't have to go all the way to the 1500s to correct Taz. We kind of had to stay in the 1700s onwards. But yeah, it was there was a lot of historical discussion, and Marxist revisionism was on full display in this debate. So I don't want to touch too too much on like the exact um, sort of political theology of Russia and like stuff like the political structures, because I'm just not as aware as you guys are. So I'll let you guys speak about that. But I do want to add a couple of things here. So um, I want to read this quote from, so this is from Dr. Eric Van Rie. He was a, um, an, I guess an intellectual historian of Stalin. Like he went through like, what did Stalin himself actually believe? So, and this is this quote, uh, he talks about before in this quote, how he went through the massive personal library of Joseph Stalin. And this is in his book, The Political Thought of Joseph Stalin. And then, so he, he says this about the library, which he went through. 
So most of these thinkers in the library can be put into the broad category of materialist, socialist, and forerunners of Marxism. Strikingly, the collection of books contained nothing written by Slavophiles, Pan-Slavists, or other Russian conservatives, other than literary figures and historians. For all his admiration, Stalin, for all Stalin's admiration of Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great, Stalin seems to have been uninterested in the systems of thought that old Russia produced. The library reflects a serious lack of interest in traditions other than Marxism. And then, so, yeah, Stalin, so Haas tries to paint Stalin as this sort of continuer of, like, the, maybe if not, like, the star, like, the, the exact office of the star, at least maybe the, the spirit of, of that, like, a sort of a true Russian leader. Um, however, as we really just into, like, Marxism and socialism and things like that. And then one thing that Haas says that really struck me as really weird is that he tried to argue that Stalin was, was actually a believing Christian, um, like a good Christian, even if he didn't go to church or whatnot. He was still a good Christian, citing the fact that he went to uh, – he was in a Georgian seminary, even though he dropped out of that. And I think he wrote some like, poetry in his diary you know, about Jesus or something like that. And um, this just seems really um, – and he said the same thing about Marx, too. He said that Marx, in some of his really early poetry, he says, like, oh, like, Jesus, I love you, or something like that. And, like, maybe they maybe they did write that. I think they, they, did, they did write that. However, that doesn't mean that later in their life they kept to that. It doesn't mean, you know, if you're, like, 16 years old and you say, I love Jesus, that doesn't mean, like, you know, 20 years down the line that you're still going to have an actual, like, um, desire for Jesus or, you know, for God or be an actual Christian in the sense that we would use the term. So, yeah, so Stalin... And you brought up, Conrad, a good point. It's that the, the most that Orthodox can give to Stalin is what Patriarch Ilya of Georgia, who could be um, you know, canonized soon um, after he passes, is that Stalin may be repented on his deathbed. Right? That's the most generous that we can be towards Stalin with regards to his Christianity. And then I want to touch on a little bit about um, Haas and his relationship with Alexander Dugan. So I've had several of my like actual works published by Dugan on his Facebook page, and you know, other of his people have... Um, you know, translated my work um, from his stuff and whatnot. And what Haas thinks about Dugan is really weird. He thinks that Dugan is secretly a Maoist. Um, look, I want to bring up this quote real quick from, uh, just give me one second here. So he says, just real quickly, he says, um, he asked rhetorically, what if the fourth political theory, which for those of you who don't know, that's the sort of ideology or the sort of project that Dugan himself has sort of uh, named. So what if the fourth political theory is none other than Marxist-Leninism itself? And then he's only the addition of a fourth political theory, but a sixth, seventh, etc. political theory are already integral to the constant self-revolutionizing, self-reforming, and self-reconstructing nature of Chinese communism or Maoism. So he basically wants to say that, yeah, actually Dugan is a secret like Marxist-Leninist Maoist. And I think that gives, tells you how serious we should take his claims about Duganism. No, I think Haas, in a lot of ways, is we've already made it clear that he's the ultimate kind of pick and choose ideology man here. And he, he really tried to push the claim that not just Stalin was that basically like he admitted and we got him like, look, Stalin didn't try to be the czar. He didn't seek the approval of the church to be appointed czar in some ceremony. But Haas says, even though that didn't even happen, we need to like be generous. And because of supposed economic benefit to the country, we need to view the communists in the light of what they did and how they're, actually or can be viewed in orthodox light and fulfilling that same legacy of the czar and that's just i'm sorry but that's just completely absurd even looking at something like mount athos we've all seen the famous photo where putin went to athos and i'm sure some 
you know, very perhaps zealous monarchist monks, I believe, had him positioned where it appears that he's kind of standing in the in the throne of the emperor and bishop, where only the only non-bishops that would be allowed to sit or stand there would be the emperor, with the implication, of course, being that Putin is more akin to an emperor than the Soviet. That was ne- like no Soviet people ever visited Mount Athos. There was never anything like that. And so it's clear that the monks on Athos, who many kind of view as the Athos as the center of orthodoxy, they see now a Christian ruler of Russia, someone who openly participates in Christian rituals, someone who openly defends the church. He views them as someone that could be, they view this as a return to more return to the, that form of the pre-communist emperors than anything going on during the Soviet Union. So I just think that argument's very silly. And I wanted to read this quote from St. John of Kronstadt, and this is published in the Romanov Royal Martyrs, What Silence Could Not Conceal book from uh, St. John the Forerunner Monastery, I believe in Cyprus. And this has been blessed by Elder Ephrem of America, who will be canonized soon as a saint of the Americas here. And one of his monasteries is nearby where I live. And I wanted to read this quote at the front of this book, which really sets a lot of things straight and presents through sheer analysis of newly translated diary entries and documents, the, the most elaborate and detailed picture we have of the martyrdom of the Tsar and his family and what was really going on in history prior to the Bolshevik Revolution. St. John said in 1905, We have a czar of righteous and pious life. God has sent a heavy cross of suffering to him as to his chosen one and beloved child. If there is no repentance in the Russian people, God will remove from it the pious czar and send a scourge in the person of impure, cruel, self-called rulers who will drench the whole land in blood and tears. And we made this point to Haas that, look, we're not revolutionaries per se. We wouldn't, I wouldn't have supported Yeltsin. I don't think anyone here supported Yeltsin when he did what he did. That's not to say that we also don't support the fall of the Soviet Union, but much like in the Old Testament, the Babylonian and Assyrian and even the Egyptians were sent as scourges of God to occupy and even subjugate and send into exile his chosen people and their kingdom. And and it's not like we are pro-Babylonian. It's not like we're pro-Assyrian. It's not like we're pro-Nero or any of these people or anything like that. But we know that these are things sent and controlled by God. That's the big difference between us and Haas. Haas believes that through dialectical materialism, man should do what he can to usher in this worker's paradise and be and be a slave to quote-unquote humanity, whereas we ultimately trust in God and look to an eternal kingdom to come. And of course, I want to get a bit of Dimitri's thoughts on this, but Haas was, I think, completely incapable of grasping this idea. No, absolutely not. And I mean, from our perspective, or at least what Haas was trying to defer to us was, hey, um, maybe there can be this transfer from this catacomb uh, monarchist orthodox system to say an orthodox com- communism of some sort like there is this like transfer this you know in, in a way it's it's very marxist that you know the sort of conversion from a capitalist society to you know it's, it's like a civilizational progress to something more pure and in fact he was trying to push this idea that hey communism was this even pure version of orthodoxy and that it was more orthodox as momchale mentioned uh in its content, right? Even more, you know, communists were even more Christian in their conduct than actual Christians, especially those in the late Russian Empire. And of course, the analogy which he didn't bring up, which you know, if he did, it would have been, it would have sounded a lot more convincing. I'll probably throw him a bone here if he is listening. So if he made, say, a reference to the Gospels, right? Which I'm not sure if he's read or not. It's not up to me to judge. But this reference wasn't made if he said, "Well, Christians are hypocrites," you know, Christ criticized hypocrites quite often in the gospels you'll read this especially notice how he mentions the samaritans in the north you know he does a good samaritan parable where the samaritans don't actually even follow the laws yet are more internally predisposed to goodness than 
even the Pharisees and some of the members of Israel and the Jews. He could have made that analogy, right? So the communists, the communists are the good Samaritans who stop by the road and actually help the person in need. But he doesn't even go there. He just says, well, communists are just more predisposed. But I think the analogy, the best analogy, at least for the Orthodox side, towards this idea that, hey, communists just love sharing and they love providing love and all of this, all of this goodness towards, um, you know, towards, uh, Towards other people, so they they are the actual Christians at the end of the day. Would be would be of course the idea of uh, monasticism, and you know, and some writers have actually mentioned this: the idea of no private property and this semi-socialist lifestyle in monasteries. Right. So you have to understand, uh, or in Orthodox monasticism, which we did mention, of course, in the debate. Uh, we mentioned monasticism appeared in only in the in the fourth century AD, of course, in its official form in the Roman Empire. But monasticism does have this idea where a Christian person can upgrade his life and focus strictly, notice strictly on the spiritual, not on the material, and even live in communities where everything is shared. And these communities are segregated by sex and gender, and of course, uh, it's strictly focusing on. The thing, the you know, matters of the spirit, on prayer, on going to church, and you know, as you guys may know, as you guys and girls may know, this is the primary sort of uh, idea of monasticism that we you become, you move closer to God and away from worldly things which distract us from, you know, theosis essentially. But you know, he doesn't even do that. He doesn't even compare monasticism. He doesn't bring up monasticism at all, which would have been like a perfect strike, saying, "Hey, look, the." You know, the peak of orthodoxy, most of these saints you guys are referencing are actually monastics, and monasticism is this form of orthodoxy. But here's a counterpoint. Now, I know I'm maybe arguing with a straw man here, and this is a bit sidetracked, but I do want to make this clear. Make this clear. All of these discussions have occurred before. It's just a matter of has educating himself on the subject matter at hand. Orthodox Christians have interacted with socialists since its inception, okay, in the 1800s. So we do know all of the arguments. We have counterarguments. It's already all on paper. It's just a matter of people going out there, actually reading and doing their homework. So the discourse in regards to monasticism would be, well, monks usually do say, you know, especially to you know monks who actually go through their disciplined prayers and they fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. In, in, in fact, they, monks fast 24-7 almost, you can say, except for feast days. They don't eat any meat. They don't drink milk. They don't drink alcohol, except on Sundays. There's this really strict lifestyle monks adhere to, but the wise elders and saints, especially those belonging to the monastic ranks, would say that, look, even Satan, right, the leader of the demons and the fallen angel, he fasts always. He doesn't need food or drink or sleep. He is very disciplined in the fact that he actually keeps to, you know, all of the commandments that God, you know, puts upon humans, except the fact that he doesn't have love. He's prideful. So these internal Notice the internal tenets of Christianity, the the reverence for God, the reverence for the saints, actually participation in the sacraments. Satan doesn't actually have that. He doesn't have humility. So it's the so as much as the external is important, which he claims that look externally the communists are they do act very Christian. They look they they share they share belongings, they help out the needy, things of this nature. Right? It's it's almost as if they are Christian in everything but the internal. But that's the thing. The internal does matter. You know, sacramentology, being close to God, kissing icons, prayers. These things are not simply uh, theoretical or they are actually practical. They do bring you in closeness with God. And of course, bringing it back to monarchism, like the idea of, you know, just kind of finishing on this subject, the idea of monarchy is a part of that. Like the 
Orthodox monarch Saint Nicholas II was a particular ruler with a particular ble- graceful blessing on him, and to simply dismiss that and say that that blessing can be transferred to, you know, an atheist of, of like such as Mao Zedong or you know whoever has made designate simply sacrilegious, I think, and a little bit ignorant of the tradition. So there's that consideration. There's there's the debates been going on for a long time, and it just seems like you know Hasbro's just not familiar with the particular you know argument that we will me and conrad were essentially ready for and momchalo as well we came with receipts we came with references citations but what we got was uh and uh uncooked mail essentially something you know not fully prepared and we just had to kind of digest it on the go well, let's not forget that we were in there to talk about like ukraine and serbia and he just came in with his live stream audience and audience messaging him and we were still ready on the i didn't look anything up that entire time but in all of that, everything you said, that was us also, what Dimitri just said is also us literally steel manning Haas, like giving him the benefit of the doubt on his revisionism and on all of his stuff about Lenin not really being guilty. And let's not forget, Haas opened the debate basically apologizing for Lenin, saying he had nothing to do with the murder of the Tsar and his family, that's all, that was bad, blah, blah, blah. And then I see his followers spamming disgusting cringe soyjack memes about killing the czar and his family and then within an hour of the debate he's completely slandering the romanov saying basically not saying it directly but implying that he doesn't care about that the martyrdom and everything because they were foreign and got what they did literally spouting i'm sorry but like zionist communist jewish propaganda that like every which comes up later and of course later on his stream after i booted him out for being a nonsensical grug brain and just completely derailing the debate he's spewing stuff about how real Christianity and, and how we need to unite Abrahamism needs to unite against Satan as in Muslims, Jews, and Christians. And he starts getting extremely ecumenical and saying how religious divisions are a distraction. And that all we only, he literally starts screaming that I will unite under communism, like as opposed to uniting under Christianity or Islam or whatever it is. People might identify that we all need to identify under communism. And his followers are saying things like, yeah, like Abrahamic alliance against Satan. And it's like, are you even aware of the state of the question of ecumenism and antichrist in orthodoxy? Like, why would you bring this to us as some kind of argument, Haas? Like, have you read Father Seraphim? Of course he hasn't, but have you read Father Seraphim Rose? The Vatican goes around the world with the, the few liberal patriarchs and ecumenist patriarchs that exist and Muslim leaders and form these Abrahamic faith worship centers on top of ziggurats. And the the shrine, the national shrine on nine at nine eleven, Saint Nicholas, which has become a massive scandal in the Greek Church of how long it took to construct and where all the money went, and and I'm skeptical of that whole thing to begin with. They have this silly Abrahamic faith prayer center unity thing, and it's entirely supervised by the globalist Atlantic powers that Haas supposedly claims to be against. Yet no, he thinks we all need to unite and put theology and put actual dogma and these things aside. And he doesn't care about the sacraments. This is all just. This is like infantile, like childish stuff, frankly, and like sounds a lot more like fedora atheism and then and and libtardism, frankly, than some kind of based, uh, you know, fourth position or whatever Haas wants his position to be that any given day. So I wanted to touch on a couple of things here. So um, with regards to Haas picking and choosing things that he likes from him offhand, but I think it's worth noting is Walter Benjamin. So Walter Benjamin, he's an interesting figure. Um, he wrote he has like this famous essay that. Uh, people have read or some people have read about how it's called like the um the age of art and age of mechanical reproduction basically talking about how um artwork is changing due to the camera uh, and he talks about this like i guess like the early 20th century like pre-world war one stuff um but as well as he was a marxist and he has this um he has a one of the i think the very last thing he wrote before he killed himself in 1940 41 i forget he wrote it was called this uh 
aphorisms. I, I totally forgot what it's called. I'm so sorry. But anyways, there's like this famous aphorism. The, the, the first one, it's, it's kind of famous. It talks about how there's this like mechanical Turk that plays chess and it can like, it can like never lose. Right. And then he says that, oh, yeah, by the way, that's called um, di- he calls that uh, historical materialism or dialectical materialism. Basically, that's Walter Benjamin saying that under um, Stalinism or under this sort of Soviet communism, whatever they want um, is communism and whatever and whatever they don't like is just not communism. They can never be wrong. There's no way to falsify it whatsoever. And he's critiquing that. Um, and by the way, um, Walter Benjamin was associated with people like Adorno um, and the Frankfurt School at large. Um, like those were kind of his buddies, but he died in like 1940-41. I forget the exact date. And he was clearly critiquing the Soviet Union, but Haas says, no, no, no. In actuality, this guy who's associated with the Frankfurt School, who Haas absolutely hates the Frankfurt School, he um, was um, actually critiquing Western communism or Western Marxism. And then just in general, um, Walter Benjamin is really good showing, because he likes communism. Walter Benjamin is a communist. He's a Marxist. But he shows the sort of Kabbalistic element of Marxism. Uh, but he likes that element of it. So he's really giddy when he talks about the sort of a messianic, Kabbalistic, the, uh, the Tikkun Olam aspect of Marxism. And so I brought that up in Haas. I don't think if you if you brought that up to Haas, he would probably just call you like an anti-Semite, even though you know Walter Benjamin is is a you know like a German Jew um, who wrote about how Marxism is basically Kabbalah. I was going to yeah. ask you just before if you you can say what you're going to say there too, but if you have any you know interesting receipts or anything, because I know we had some interesting followers of ours sending some good scans of books about the Soviet Union's early connections with the state of Israel, of course, Lenin's status as both a German agent and somewhat influenced by initial anti-Christian sentiment due to some Jewish background. I'm wondering if you have any interesting receipts there and some some background that Haas very much likes to ignore and suddenly begins to sound a lot like a liberal when you bring that question up. He kind of, as Dimitri said, spilled the spaghetti when he talked about when he started screaming at me about not turning on his Hasidic brothers. So with regards to um, Lenin, there's this, there, there's 19, his 1905 pamphlet, Socialism and Religion, where he says that we need to spread atheism to the proletariat. And then if you go, um, if I'll, I'll give you guys the link so you can read the article that us a while ago when we had our spat with Haas. Um, and there's a bunch of quotes from both Marx, Engels, and Lenin, and I think even Stalin here, about their views of religion, how they're basically anti-religion, but also their views of nationalism, and how they're anti-nationalism and complete, like, sort of globalist internationalist. And then I was just, in general, just going to say that he, yeah, what kind of seconding what Dimitri said about how Haas totally ignores the relationship between orthodoxy and Marxism, just even from the intellectual perspective, even before 1917. I don't think there was any, you know, prominent... Orthodox people who were in favor of communism whatsoever. I mean, maybe you had a couple of like priests who were like in favor of it, but besides that, they were always very much against, you know, Marxism and communism, even before 1917. And then 1917 afterwards, they were also that too. So I just find it uh, really funny that he thinks that he can give one, you know, quote um, that's, you know, somewhat sympathetic to communism from the Khrushchev era. And by the way, he doesn't like Khrushchev. Right, he's a Stalinist who thinks that Khrushchev is this, you know, is like this, you know, the great Satan because he, um, you know, denounced Stalin. And he, I don't know why he used this as proof, but um, yeah, he totally ignores that history. And it's also important to remember, uh, it's important to remember that the guy before Haas came on that we were talking to, uh, one of um his uh, uh fans or whatever, said that Haas was a perennialist. Yeah, so just uh, so striking on that actually, just so Haas's Haas's religious background. Notice it wasn't even uh, it wasn't even discussed in the in, in the talk. So we kind of assumed he was 
he was an atheist from the get-go because, well, communism really doesn't um, mold very well you know, with religions, especially. You know, Haas, we knew he was of the Middle Eastern background, but we, we never even assumed he was, say, uh, of an uh, Islamic faith, or either Shia or Sunni. You know, what we found out later was that, hey, and of course his follower mentioned that, hey, he was a perennialist, which totally aligned with what Conrad mentioned at the end of the stream, has went on to mention, hey, let's have this ecumenistic union around communism and it'll kind of bring us all together now uh, i mean just as a layman what does that sound like you know the unity of all religions under a certain umbrella for you know political goals maybe to better society i mean sounds to me like freemasonry frankly and it, this is one of the things he kept bringing up was hey freemasonry is this evil well why is freemasonry evil from your perspective like does Marx speak out against it is it is it evil because it's capitalistic we have our reasons as to why we Orthodox folks denounce Freemasonry, but it isn't very evident why a communist Marxist would denounce Freemasonry, because sounds like you're, what you're pushing is essentially a similar framework where everybody unites as opposed to instead of a lodge at a, you know, proletariat dinner party or perhaps even a, you know, at a communist gathering, for example, on Saturday nights. So it, there is this link there, again, maybe even intellectual and historically inherited from Freemasonry, which, you know, a lot of communists were related to that. We, let's just not forget that a lot of the communists pre-Lenin in Russia, so essentially while Lenin was living in Switzerland and in exile, not in the Russian Empire, the head Jadze, for example, of the uh, Petrograd Soviet, they were all Freemasons and, of course, members of the Russian Masonic Lodges. So all the prominent communists in Russia prior to Lenin were all Freemasons and they handed power over to the Bolsheviks. You know, essentially they were cooperating with Bolsheviks. All of all of the initial communists in Russia prior to Lenin's coming in October, they were all Freemasons. So communism and Freemasonry, they aren't exactly at odds from the get-go, but let me just speak about this big tent ecumenism, which you know Haas mentioned because look, so he doesn't want atheism, sure, we understand that. Okay. He picks and chooses, discards atheism. What does he want? Does he want an ecumenist perennialism as you know, Montsolo mentioned that his follower, you know, his follower you know, claimed that has subscribed to. Well, if that's the case, well, he has also mentions the condition that, hey, MAGA communism is a very practical movement. He kept moving away from this conversation. Notice how he kept saying, oh, we're not, we're not about the theory. We're not about that spirituality, spiritual gobbledygook, all that extra sacramentology. Like we, we, we respect that. We think it improves humanity, but we can't really get caught up in the weeds here. We cannot be Pharisees. We cannot be, uh, you know, cannot follow the letter of the law, people of the book. He kept bringing up these biblical analogies, which really didn't fit anywhere, frankly, but he kept saying, we can't actually follow the tenets of the religion exactly let's follow the spirit of it it's like okay sure let's follow the spirit so you want to be a practical political you know and you, you want to be a practical political movement maga communism maga assumes make america great again right that's the abbreviation so in in the context of a united states say it's the year is 2045 um, J jackson hinkle and has or you know movers of maga communism it is successful in the u.s how will they just judging by the by Haz's interaction with us, two or three Orthodox Christians, how will he convince Orthodox Christians, some homesteading, gun-toting, free Orthodox Christians in the U.S. to actually adhere to this ecumenistic, somewhat Freemasonic-sounding movement and just claiming that, hey, we're all Abrahamic, just join in, don't worry about all this Kabbalistic, you know, 
baggage that Marxism and Leninism has, you know, from the 1800s. Don't worry about all this theoretical nonsense that doesn't align with your Christian faith. Just come join us. We will all be together. So there's this, uh, there's a certain impracticality and has really didn't show how exactly we Orthodox Christians are meant to discard some of our concerns and actually join into this ecumenistic. Uh, and why should we? Why should we? I mean, it was has even aware of how true Orthodox Christian beliefs do not align with with ecumenism and how that's an issue for us. I'm not sure he was, because there is this understanding with him where it's like, oh, uh, well, we can just discard some of the details of the faith and not follow the Nicene Creed. Well, no, we must follow some of these tenets. These are, you know, these are the foundations of the faith. We cannot compromise on anything here. So again, has a misunderstanding of Christianity, kind of, and then claiming that his movement was practical and somehow Orthodox Christians can, you know, join join this uh, ecumenical side of you know this MAGA communism. I think it was completely absurd. And you know, it, listening to that recording in hindsight, I think that kind of brought it out even more. Well, I think in many ways, it's. I said this at the very beginning. People are getting shoehorned. They're trying to shoehorn this silly dialectic as the Russia thing really reshapes the world. And multipolarity rises. They're bringing out this dialectic of neoliberalism versus quote-unquote based communism. And notice, you push a little bit, and what can't you talk about under based communism? Well, I guess you can't talk about Judaism, you can't talk about theology, and you can't talk about you know, the sacredness of monarchy. So if that's the case, then I want nothing to do with it. And then you take on, in fact, all of this ecumenistic Abrahamic stuff. Like, this is just one world religion Satanism, if not, you're right, Freemasonry at the very least. And I was just going to make a funny point. I doubt these dialectical materialists have really deconstructed their cosmology or anything. They they claim to have, you know, fully deconstructed all their meta narratives and all their analysis of history. Yet I'm sure they know nothing about the Freemasonic roots of their own cosmology that they believe, as well as you know the roots of Copernican and Galileo and and esotericism and Vatican corruption. They don't think about any of that because these people are still stuck in that. Frankly, it, it's still stuck in a post Enlightenment view in many ways, even though they claim to be post modern. But I think a lot of a lot of things he uh, has talked about communism in Russia and he views Russia as this big thing for communism. He, Russia and China, he loves them. He thinks communism is rising in Eurasia. Whereas I think just consult Joel Davis and Keith Woods on the fact that China is much more akin to a national socialist state than some kind of Marxist dogmatic nation. And I think for Russia, he talked about the communist party in Russia and how big it is and how relevant they are and everything. But in Russia, communism is like Reaganism is in America. It's for boomers. It's nostalgia for the Soviet union. It's people that hated living through the nineties that wish that the Soviet union had never collapsed. So they never had to go through that and kind of get liquidated and start from zero. It was a horrible time, but now the rising civilization in Russia is not communist. It's still actually finding itself and it may be monarchist in the future. As of now, it's very much orthodox and now it's reasserting itself on a territorial basis. And Haas seems to care more about how he can shape and meme that into, into communism, which is just silly to me. I don't know if Dimitri wants to talk on that a little bit. And then I want to give mom the chance to talk about, uh, to end, to land the plane a little bit on Lenin and communism and any details he wants to provide. Yeah, essentially, there's this uh, export going on of like the idea that Russia will somehow benefit MAGA communism. But essentially, what is happening in Russia right now is that socialism is taking a you know a back step. What we're seeing is uh, you know the, the the victory of orthodoxy, or at least of the orthodox belief that hey, Russia and Ukraine at least need to be united in some spiritual notice. That's in regards to the church matters as well as cultural sense, but communists from the get-go were trying to disunite Ukraine and trying to Ukrainianize Ukraine to the point where, you know, it completely disconnected from Russia artificially. So again, and Momchilo did mention that Stalin was a big internationalist, so let's not forget that Stalin actually was 
in favor of the fact that Ukrainians were this distinct people, like separate from Russia and Russians were chauvinistic. You guys can go read all of this up. I mean, Trotsky, Lenin, these people all believed in this idea that the Russian Empire needed to be dissected, um, you know, like a, a black a black mass sort of ritual. It it was completely it was completely rotten and had nothing to do with, of course, Russian culture, Russian uh, Russian identity, or any Russian inherited heritage. You know, it's a thousand year old tradition. So, and obviously nothing to do with Christianity at all. So there's this idea that has keeps pushing that, look, um, Russia ha will have this impact on the future of America, on the future of MAGA communism, but we don't see any MAGA communism or anything of the sort in Russia itself. I mean, we can mention some of the socialist uh, leanings of the Donbass folks and some of the communist, uh, so to speak, so, so cr some of the socialist slash the very light communist brigades that acted in Donbass, but Haz doesn't even go on to mention them. I mean, I'm here mentioning them now, but yes, there are Christian socialists and so-called orthodox communists in Russia, yes, but these people do not debate. Their ideas are mostly uh, very ill-founded, and, and they, they don't make it very far. And yes, the leader of the Communist Party in Russia at the moment, Gennady Zhuganov, who's been active, he's essentially like the communist mirror of Zhirinovsky, who recently passed away, God rest his soul. Um, his Gennady Zhuganov is is very much a boomer. He's about as a boomer of a politician as you can get. And that's why he's actually failed to win any presidential election since the 90s. This man's been trying for 30 years, and he can't even get his act straight. So that's really not a good example. And I respect Gennady Zyuganov. I think he's I think he's done very well to support the Putin presidency over the last 20 years. But he failed in the, in the 90s, actually not beating Yeltsin and allowing the Russian corruption to go on. And of course, not even saving Russia in the 90s. Gennady Zyuganov wasn't Putin. He was more of like a failed version of even Zhirinovsky. Zhirinovsky is more of a traitor and a Judas, but yeah, that's if we're going to speak about domestic politics here. But even Zhuganov, like, um, I mean, his ideology is, you know, pretty uh, artificial to this point. I don't even think he understands why he's an Orthodox Christian as opposed to an atheist. Why he can pick and choose um, communist doctrine and kind of discard atheism all of a sudden. I don't think he's thought about it any any more deeper than has has. And of course, Russia now, of course, is on the forefront. So there's a lot of essentially people kind of clinging onto this idea that, hey, if Russia rises, maybe I can get a piece of the pie. Well, Russia's rising, but the piece of the pie is not communist and it isn't socialist, at least not like when we don't really have any say in it. But what we are observing has no influence. The influence here is not definitely not MAGA communism. It definitely isn't Leninism. And in fact, you know, some of the statues of Lenin are... Yes, so some of them are being put back up, you know, falsely and wrongly around Ukraine, the statues that Ukrainians have, you know, destroyed alongside, of course, many imperial and orthodox statues. And you know, orthodox churches have been burned. Ukrainians don't just destroy communist monuments, which Russians, for some reason, are restoring, but they also destroy any monuments that have to do with Russian history. So that's what the consideration there, okay? Just this, that's kind of a side point. But yeah, there is this understanding, of course, the wrong understanding that has has that. He can kind of grift off of Russia's success and kind of push this towards political success in the United States. But the United States, because MAGA communism is specifically about the U.S. So what is he trying to achieve in the U.S.? What does this have to do with orthodoxy, which is Russia's calling card at the moment? Putin is making references to the gospel in almost every single long speech, which is over 20 minutes. He's referencing Christian scripture 
not Marx, not Lenin, and definitely not Stalin. So again, yeah, it seems to be a grift at this point, and that's me putting it lightly. And they're also, I mean, at the end of the day, this could, as Momchile did mention earlier, it could just be a personality-driven movement, which it does seem to be, but if it will have any sort of intellectual results or if it will yield anything positive, at least in a political sense, they will need to work on some of these sticking points, maybe even make some you know, pr- produce a manifesto of sorts which we can read and actually understand what MAGA communists literally believe in as opposed to having some of these, uh, I'm not sure what to even cl- uh, call them, but some of these has infrared community members come into our you know, Twitter spaces and post online and claim things which don't exactly align even with what their leader says. Like, for example, has is, one of them claims that has is a perennialist and one of them claims that has is a Shia Muslim. Which one is it? So, anyways, the claims are all different. Momchile, um, I'm not sure what your opinion is on this, but I'll let you have I'll let you have your say. Yeah, I think Haas and his movement is very like you know cult of personality driven. Not necessarily in the I don't think it's a cult per se, but as in the sense like it's all around like you know Haas's personality. He's very verbose. He's very sort of like you know in your face. He's very much a character. Um, I think we saw this with the way that he acted on the, the Twitter spaces, where since he was live streaming himself, he needs to put on a sort of show with his audience, and everything has to become this sort of spectacle, right? Everything's like, oh, yeah. Like, like every conversation he has, he has to make a huge deal about, you know, like, you know, MAGA communism undefeated, you know, like infrared undefeated, you know, we stay winning. Uh, he has to put on this, you know, big show rather than being more, having more nuanced view on things. It's very, um, you know, spectacular in the worst sense of the word. And I guess just to kind of... um. Uh, you know, wrap up here just to say um, I have my articles that uh, they'll be in the description that go way more in depth on what exactly like Marx has believed and how far off like Hawes is with that. But even then, so both, there's both problems with Marxism, like Orthodox Marx, like a lowercase o, Orthodox Marxism, sort of like from Marx, Engels, Lenin. There's problems with that Marxism. However, there's also problems with Hawes's view of Marxism. However, Hawes also has another problem where he's trying to claim the inheritance of, uh, of the original Marxism, but he fails to do that. And even just kind of system, regardless of how accord or doesn't accord to um, Marxism, it also fails on its own grounds as well. So there's that sort of two-pronged attack that I think we're making against Hawes. Not only is he a bad Marxist, he's also just his philosophy, regardless of how true to Marxism it is, is totally wrong. And I think that the best way to sort of look at um, Marxism, generally speaking, including Hawes' sort of chimera version of it, is to look at the sort of the story of like the prodigal son. Right, so it's Marxism is the ideology of the son who goes off with his father's inheritance, and that inheritance is our moral epistemological framework. And he goes out with that inheritance, and he tries to create all these systems, but then he ends up, you know, blowing all that inheritance because it's inherently parasitical due to the the, the dialectical and the revolutionary nature of Marxism. It ends up overturning that inheritance, which was which was making so Marxism is the ideology of the prodigal son. It's the son going out with his father's inheritance. And that inheritance is um, the moral epistemology of the Christian worldview. And then he goes about, you know, blowing all of that. But the problem is, is that with his idea of revolution, so that's like parting in this in the in the parable with like revolution, um, he's overturning his own inheritance. He's making mute with dialectics and revolution the inheritance, which is giving him a groundwork to even believe in things like the dignity of man, to believe in freedom, to believe that you know you should do some actions and not do other actions. This idea that you know. You know, like raping people is wrong, for instance, you know, just basic things. He's overturning that. And then he's going to end up blowing all the inheritance to the parasitical nature of you know, dialects or, you know, materialist dialects in this case. And then once there's going to be a famine, once these ideas are 
there's going to be a famine once these ideas are instituted, and then he's going to have to come back to, you know, the father, which is going to have to be orthodoxy. So that's the way that I view Marxism. You know, it's going to blow all of its inheritance. It's going to blow all the foundations that make it even somewhat plausible. Um, and then the only way that you can save it is coming back to the father, coming back to, you know, the Orthodox church or, you know, coming to it if you've never experienced it before. I think that's a great way to leave it, Mom Chilo. Dimitri and I are going to talk a little bit about the news, but I think he's got to get going. So uh, we want to thank him again. We're going to have all that in the description and we'll probably have him on again soon. This was a fantastic discussion. I think y'all are really going to like it. So. God bless, man. All right. Thank you. See you guys soon. See you. Thank you so much, Mom Chilo. This was a great segment at the beginning. So now me and Dimitri are going to get into a bit more of a standard world war now, talk about the news, talk about World War Three as it continues. And to kind of bridge this a little bit, though, one of the things Haas talked about so much in – he kept – it was like the main citation, really the only citation he had in the church – was uh, Nikodim Ratov, Archbishop. He was, I believe, Patriarch Kirill's spiritual father, writing some semi-pro-communist things at the time of Khrushchev. I believe we briefly mentioned him. Mamchilo brought him up. And I know Dmitri knows more about him than me. He's going to talk a little bit about that. But it was uh, to say that that is not sufficient evidence to uh, epistemologically or, you know, ground Haas's claim in Orthodox tradition is that that's not true, to say the least. Yeah, so essentially, while the Orthodox Church was under soft persecution during the 1960s, so religion was legal in the Soviet Union, but, you know, it was heavily uh, censored and, you know, communism was propagandized to the point where even Orthodox priests and bishops were under pressure to actually produce pro-communist works. And this uh, fellow Metropolitan Nicodem and Archbishop Nicodem, he was both Metropolitan and Archbishop, actually, of two different cities, but he he was, uh, I suppose, the most eloquent and popular character at the time of the 1960s in the Soviet Union. So in many ways, if many of you are familiar with the current Archbishop of the Greek Orthodox Church of America, Archbishop Elpidophorus, uh, he was essentially what I would say would be a lighter version, the equivalent of an Elpidophorus. So just as talented in terms of like making a scene, but also um, maybe not as uh, not as degenerate, so to speak. Um, and of course, Archbishop Nicodem, like, let's give a bit of some of his biography. So he was actually the youngest bishop at the time to be ordained at only 31 years of age. So very talented man. But his talent, and I think going, this is based on what some of the contemporaries of Archbishop Nicodem actually remember about him, is that his talent actually consisted in his managerial role. So as we know, bishops in the church are managers, administrators, and he could actually manage and administer clergymen very well, and he knew exactly who to promote to clergyhood and who who would actually serve a good role for the people. And this was his, I suppose, talent, because the man was quite talented. So Archbishop Nicodem Rothov essentially surrounded himself with extreme talent and one of those talented men was the young seminary, uh, you know, future graduate patriot, the future patriarch Kirill uh, Gunzayev. So the future patriarch of Russia was one of his apprentices, and Archbishop uh, and Metropolitan Nicodem was his spiritual father as well as his, um, I suppose, a protege. He kind of taught him the ways of, you know, of, of orthodoxy, essentially of Russian orthodoxy in in the most elite fashion. You know, theology, how do you how do you administer the church? And we see patriarch Kirill has used a lot of that knowledge today, but Archbishop Nicodem, of course, had some questionable opinions uh, on communism, which he wrote under, you know, probably a lot of severe pressure in the 60s and 70s. And the other controversial thing about Archbishop Nicodem, which I think it was very inappropriate of Howes to bring him up as his main source of Orthodox Church 
church supporting communism because of Archbishop Nicodem's articles. Like this is just, it's not, it's not, I'm not going to say it's disingenuous, but it is a, a very low blow. It's something, it's similar to using St. Augustine um, against the Orthodox Church just because St. Augustine had a few mistakes. It doesn't make him not Orthodox. But Archbishop Nicodem, of course, was a big time ecumenist in the 60s and 70s during, of course, uh, the EP Athenagoras's uh, reign as well. So he participated in all of those ecumenical movements from the Russian perspective, and he even ended up dying, actually, funny enough. And p- people people even say to this day, providentially, he was visiting Rome, and while he was at the Vatican, he actually became very ill, and he died with the Pope reading the um, prayers over him. So he died technically even in the arms of the Pope. So while he was conducting a communist meeting, so in a pretty providential fashion, Nikodim Rotov passed away in 1978 and uh, left the Russian church with some good and some pretty bad traditions, which to this day, of course, we don't like to speak ill of the dead. But yeah, so there is that um, tradition of him, you know, passing away at the Vatican, very uh, providential in my mind. Well, and Haas, I mean, Momchelo had mentioned that Haas is citing this person as praising communism during the Khrushchev era, which Haas, of course, despises. But moving a little bit aside from Haas, and the Vatican is in the news recently with the posthumous book published by Pope Benedict. Of course, uh, the Vatican and its geopolitical intrigue and roots go back even before the Enlightenment. It's kind of, we would consider the schism in the Vatican institution kind of a pre-Enlightenment in Christian in the Christian world as far as the degradation of the apostolic deposit goes. Haas, of course, has no idea about any of that. Sorry to keep going back to that guy. But I think in the Vatican front with Pope Benedict, it's fascinating. It's not necessarily anything surprising about his disgust at the abuse, his disgust at the fact that many clerk, many uh, seminaries are just gay dating site, gay dating zones and gay hospices and stuff. He he's kind of said, and it seems that as many people in the Catholic world are kind of that they aren't set of a contest, not necessarily even going SSPX, but they are very, they, they almost like hinting at the idea that, oh, now the see may be vacant now that Pope Benedict died and that Pope Francis, because they really just don't like Pope Francis. And Pope Francis seems to be unperturbed by this. He was very recently issuing statements against sodomy laws, against any kind of criminalization of homosexual acts, being frankly very dishonest, implying that those laws make thinking in your head or being attracted to people illegal when in reality it's just the actual act, which he admits later in the speech is a sin. So it's a bit disingenuous there, but it proves that he is not perturbed by this kind of 15th century intrigue where a pope posthumously publishing a huge expose and his true feelings on the institution of the Vatican. Yeah, and of course, um, Pope Benedict actually speaking about the, um, I guess I'll just call it openly, the gay lobby of the Roman Catholic Church in the 21st century. It is... Uh, very curious to note that um, how how does this tie into geopolitics? Well, essentially, uh, as as you may understand, there is a lot of geopolitics. Of course, there's a lot of espionage ongoing, and so you have Catholic priests all around the world serving various nations and even nations with very uh, high tech surveillance uh, you know, capabilities. And homosexuality and LGBTQ relations are not necessarily um, legal yet in the Roman Catholic Church. So anyone caught under those circumstances, engaging in those actions will be, of course, renounced and would lose their status in the Catholic Church. It's a very prestigious organization and worldly affairs. So you, what you have is uh, you have these, you know, this issue that Pope Benedict is basically saying that, hey, look, there's actually a lot of ho- there's a lot of homosexuals serving in the Roman Catholic Church, even from seminary. And this essentially means that there is this uh, weak spot in the Roman Catholic Church, whereas you'd have, you know, these priests perhaps engaging in homosexual acts around the world and the compromise, the blackmail potential of uh, espionage 
you know, in, in institutions, for example, the CIA, uh, Mossad, for example, just spying on these priests, actually engaging in these activities and using it as blackmail against the Roman Catholic Church, which is why a lot of Roman Catholic churches around the world, particular local churches, they are uh, very much um, compromised in certain ways. Like in Germany, there's, there's, there's this big divide between what they actually believe in. And in the US, I think there's a lot of um, internal uh, subversion going on. And some of the subversion, of course, will probably be through LGBTQ blackmail institutions by the uh, you know state departments of the relevant nations. And I think that's one of the considerations there is that, yes, actually having having that reality and Pope Benedict exposing it um, is says a lot about the Roman Catholic Church and exactly how um, how compromised of an institution it is from the get-go and even at the basic clerical level, even you know, local priests, I'm not even going to speak about bishops, because in the Roman Catholic Church, all priests are supposed to be celibate, let alone, you know, uh, so not, not engaging with women, uh, let alone men or any, anybody else for that matter. Well, and it's and even from our perspective, a lot of the ways there's obviously all this abuse, and it, as Dimitri said, that presents a lot of within the Vatican itself. We know there are many priests. There are priests employed at the Vatican, which is a city state. It's, it's it's a very important key piece in the Mediterranean and the world geopolitically. And there's priests in there that that all this this homosexual blackmail stuff is real. I mean, even just watch the the show, The Young Pope. I think that's a, I think that's a pretty good show and a good insight into a lot of how this kind of this stuff goes. But I think. Uh, even more than that, from our perspective of what we speak about on World War Now, many Catholics and Catholics that are traditional and conservative, they love to speak about Fatima. And we talk about Russia and Ukraine, and we're going to get a bit more into that, as well as Germany and what's going The German bishops are where the Catholic Church is really falling apart. The German and Belgian bishops are writing homosexual blessings for homosexual unions, performing these rites, basically defying the Vatican stance. And the Vatican isn't doing what they're doing. They're isn't really doing much. It's kind of just letting them do that, let it take its time. But they're really persecuting the traditional Latin mass. That's something that they seem to be willing to do post haste. But even more than that, with Fatima and these sort of things, it's for, from so many levels, this institution, I believe, is exposing itself as compromised to the world to the point where it can only be stated that it fell off theologically and is now reaping those consequences through papism, filioque, ADS, all sorts of other things that have split it from orthodoxy. It has now become a institution of the world serving the interests of certain men. And that's not to say that there aren't many faithful, good Catholics and even Catholics who are fighting the good fight on the geopolitical front. But it's very obvious that the prophecies of Fatima, even despite, I believe, those priests who have good intentions looking at an orthodox reading of it, which is very, which is basically only interpreting one prophecy from it as opposed to all the secret lore that's been added on. It's very clearly a Cold War propaganda tactic. And we see it being echoed with Pope Francis's consecration of Russia to the Sacred Heart for the fourth or fifth time that it's supposedly been done by Roman Catholicism. And it just doesn't seem that this that this institution is able to, whether it's prophetically or institutionally or theologically, guide this flock of a billion, you know, Christians around the world. And I think as we see this unfold with Pope Benedict, that's just kind of another piece on that. And that isn't to say that oh, bad things happen in the church, or priests are corrupt, therefore your church is wrong. No, there's theological and historical arguments for that. But to say that this wouldn't lead from the latter happening, that's, that is also true. 
Very well said, Conrad. And of course, moving on to the, the fact that Germany at the moment is not just compromised in a spiritual sense, but of course, geopolitically, G Germany has recently agreed to send its Leopard 2 tanks to the Ukraine, of course, aiding the Ukraine in both, um, in both a monetary and hu humanitarian sense, which it was doing for, you know, a few months now, but finally actually at, at, at you know, breaking the, you know, tradition which has existed since World War Two of not actually supplying military aid to any nation. And finally, they're actually supplying not just any military aid, but actual tanks uh, in significant numbers, significantly, I suppose, to make an actual dent in, in the Russian lines. And Germany has agreed to supply Leopard 2 tanks. And in, in answer to that, of course, you have the United States under Joe Biden uh, going, at, going against his own words and agreeing to send 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine as well. Now, the important note here is, of course, that the Leopard 2 tanks from Germany will arrive a lot sooner, and I believe even as we speak now, it's been about a week since this news has been announced, or maybe a bit less than a week, but these Leopard 2 tanks will shortly arrive in the Ukraine. They'll be, you know, you know, they'll be quickly maintenanced, and then they'll be sent to the front lines in very due haste, maybe even before the, uh, before the end of January. So we'll be looking at um, actually kind of observing how these new tanks from Germany will actually act. Meanwhile, the Abrams tanks, I believe, will be will come with some delay. Maybe they won't even make it to the Ukraine by springtime, which in Europe would be March. And essentially, if you recall that prediction of Conrad, so, uh, you know, of course, the Russian offensive will probably pick up speed towards the end of February. So it'll be interesting to see how these uh, Leopards and Abrams, will they, uh, you know, provide any sort of issues to the Russians, at least on that particular front. No, I think uh, in many ways this also comes on the heels of Annalena Baerbock, one of the uh, top officials in Germany, saying that we are fighting a war against Russia, directly saying this. And of course, the German people themselves are very against sending all these tanks. You see all these billboards in Russia with the in Germany with these things like, "Are we really doing this again?" With you know sending tanks to Russia because you know we know how those that has ended in the past for people that send infantry and ground forces and these machines into Russia. But the F-16 question is what comes after this, with the Netherlands and the U.S. seeming to kind of want to push the F-16 issue. And remember, Germany, before there was tanks, they had it as their red line, like no tanks. And now that they've sent tanks, they're saying their new red line is no F-16s. So the questions become, how many months is it going to take till Germany sends those planes over? And as Brian Berletic and many other people have said, Will Ukraine having a few more F-16s really help anything? No, it's just going to get some pilots killed and cause likely more civilian casualties due to crashing debris and reactivated air defense at high speeds and, you know, more missiles and artillery being shot from the air, as we saw at the very beginning of the conflict in a major way. So I think we're seeing more and more just a slow puddle of escalation. And I think in many ways, we've talked a lot about how Russia could have benefited from striking earlier. In many ways, that's only because you can only say that knowing that the U.S. was going to provoke a conflict eventually. And we see this as compared to China and North Korea. China and North Korea, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but China and North Korea benefit from waiting. As Taiwan, this political situation with Taiwan and the decline of the U.S. military only makes it more likely as time goes on for an actual peaceful reunification. And then for North Korea, the demographic situation with South Korea is so bad that they're going to, within a few generations, will completely population, will have a much higher population, not much higher, but will have a higher population in South Korea and more fighting age men in general, as South Korea has like a 0.9 birth rate and North Korea has a 1.9 birth rate for its women. So that's just one thing to think about in general as these, when you think about these conflicts and waiting them out. But as far as the Ukraine front goes, there has been general advancements for Russia. They've been moving forward around Ugladar and some of these areas near Donetsk in the region. 
And there's also, this has led to some John Most, Jelkov, and Prigozhin, but I'm going to let Dimitri unpack a little bit more of that, as well as just the, the map sit rep. Yeah, so essentially, Uglidar is being pushed by the Russians, as well as it's the fighting on the Zaporozhye end. Uh, looked like we, you know, we announced last week that hey, Zaporozhye may begin to become on this come under siege soon. That hasn't even occurred yet, so it does seem like the Russians are pushing and prodding at least the front line of the defense, which is a valid strategy. You know, keep the Ukrainians, I suppose, on their toes and sort of as well as for the Ukrainians, it would be beneficial to actually see exactly how entrenched they are. So, you know, Zaporozhye is still not under threat, but we believe in probably towards the end of February, it will be one of the goal cities that Russians will be pushing towards as their sort of main objective. Now, we are seeing some drama, of course, on the uh, on the Bakhmut-Wagner end, where uh, Wagner essentially is inviting that uh, Wagner CEO and chief, uh, you know, Evgeny Prigozhin, the former chef of Vladimir Putin, um, has invited Igor Strelkov, one of the primary commentators who we've referenced on the show multiple times, invited him to actually join the mercenary group as a squad commander, which Strelkov is completely capable of fulfilling that role. Um, uh, which he has fulfilled not just in Donbass, but also in some of the other, let's just say, operations in the post-Soviet theater, which, you know, we can go go, go into Stilkov's pretty rich biography, but uh, there really isn't the time for that now. But Stilkov was invited to join the mercenary group, and he um, very impolitely declined, uh, saying that, you know, saying that oh, Evgeny Prigozhin has, didn't ask me correctly and all this other stuff. Now, this, of course, is reminiscent of Evgeny Prigozhin asking Alexei Navalny, the Russian oppositionary leader who was imprisoned in one of the one of the prisons in Siberia to actually join, again, join Wagner. Uh, and this was taken as a bit of a joke, but Alexei Navalny, of course, again, impolitely declined. So it does seem like Evgeny Prigozhin is either trolling Stilkov or actually is genuinely wants to bring Stilkov back to the front line, which... Uh, would be quite interesting, and um, Stilkov did decline. So, for whatever reason, he isn't uh, too keen on joining uh, joining the uh, musicians and sort of their escapades in Bakhmut and kind of commanding them front, line, front and center. So, I do think Stilkov is at the moment making some making some headway in, uh, I suppose, uh, stirring things up on the Russian end. The Russians are very confused and upset at the fact that, oh, well, he's not actually returning back to the front lines. And it, it is causing a bit of dismay, especially in the fact that he he's very predisposed at critiquing uh, Shoigu and now Prigozhin and some of the other fi- figures in the Russian military sphere. I'm not saying it's justified or unjustified. That is just a matter of fact. Stilkov is very set on providing constructive and maybe sometimes blackpilling criticism of the Russian leadership, and he continues to do that, I suppose, from an armchair position. But he is a military expert, so perhaps, perhaps he can he can do that. Yes, yeah, so essentially uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin now, that of course, is a prominent. He's coming up in headlines around the world. The United States have, of course, listed him, the leader of the Wagner mercenary group, as an international terrorist. So essentially he's on the same... Uh, who's on the same level as in Osama bin Laden, even though this guy uh, you know, hasn't committed any terrorist acts. If anything, he's something akin to an Eric Prince who led Blackwater um, during the Iraq war. So Evgeny Prigozhin, for those interested, would be like the equivalent of an Eric Prince. But of course, the United States is happy with Eric Prince because he served their needs. But Evgeny Prigozhin served the needs of Russia first, and hence uh, he cannot be placed on the same legal level as Mr. Prince. No, it's true. And I think... Before we get into North Korea a little bit, I want to hear a bit. I want to hear your thoughts on this. That with Stretokov, I mean, I don't know of any equivalent in in Ukraine besides people that are actually just refusing to fight due to poor conditions, that are that are as high ranking and as just like able to vocally criticize such specific kind of on the ground situations. 
And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on what that says about the structure of Russian command, Russia's relationship with the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics, as well as, you know, how it compares to the Ukrainian structure and even the structure in Western militaries. Yeah, so I think, of course, there is this, this centralized aspect as that we spoke about that the Russian military, at least on one, on one, on one end, it's very constructive in that the official military is, of course, has a proper leadership chain, but there are, of course, the Donetsk and Lugansk people's volunteer groups, various battalions of Cossacks, Orthodox battalions, and even some volunteer battalions from overseas coming in to sort of support the free to freedom of Donbass sort of fighting force. And, and there are also the Kadyrov battalions, which uh, have their own Chechen Muslim commanders as well as uh, Muslim clerics. So there are there is this decentralized aspect to the Russian uh, to the Russian forces. And Wagner, naturally, the mercenaries follow their own leadership, and and of course they 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 get paid higher wages. And Strelkov kind of doesn't seem to get want to get involved in that anymore, especially after the last controversy where he was in a very humiliating fashion, kind of sent back home and not given. I think he's still a little bit upset about that. So it does say that, hey, um, you know, Stilko's still a bit personally upset about the fact that he wasn't allowed to fight the first time he was, you know, he actually visited Ukraine uh, in at the end of 2022, and he was, you know, essentially had to return back to Moscow. Now, I think what it does say about Russian about the Russian structure is that Stilkov does have a roof over his head, so to, so to speak. He is the, one of the only people who can actually criticize the war effort without any reprimands. He hasn't been taken to court. He's the, Technically, he has broken laws uh, relating to misinformation, or at least these are very broad uh, this, new sort of statutes that Russia has implemented that, hey, you cannot actually uh, spread misinformation about the special military operation. But Stilkov has really pushed that limit, and nobody's taken to, to him to court or pro- prosecuted him the russian attorney generals have kind of withheld so i do think he has an umbrella over him in terms of he's allowed to actually criticize shoigu criticize the military leadership gerasimov uh Surovikin, he hasn't really touched yet prigozhin even prigozhin now i think he's going to start getting on prigozhin's nerves but notice how he's not actually being touched criticized or even openly targeted for anything it seems that Maybe his um his older connections in the FSB still have his back in the Kremlin somewhere. So Stilkov does have big sponsors, I, I believe, still in the Russian government, which is why his channels are not only blowing up, but also uh, he's able to say what he says without you know any reprimand. Well, that's a, I think that's a good analysis. And now we're going to move. Speaking of you know people that say what they don't really want to say with Vucic and now with North Korea. It seems North Korea has, you know, fully thrown in the towel behind the Russian special military operation. The U.S. is accusing them of arming Russia. It's, uh, who was it? Was it Kim Jong-un's sister? She was the one that announced this, I believe. And this comes after some very new missile launches and things of this nature. And I had mentioned before, remember, North Korea, 1.9 birth rate compared to the terrible, I believe, 0.9 birth rate in South Korea. So from that perspective, the, winning the Korean War, which has supposedly never ended, uh, North Korea is really is is really playing the long game there and could easily win. And we were talking before, Dimitri kind of mentioned how North Korea now is more sure is is in a very sure position if you know World War Three or to really go hot between all the global powers. It's very obvious which side North Korea is on. Whereas other countries who are by no means friends of the West, such as Serbia, they are uh, they're now in an extremely precarious position, totally caught between two 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 big powers. One of which has been historically a friend, another is their People that have literally dismantled them at every turn, but due to politics and other things, it seems they're they're unsure of themselves. Yeah, so Vucic essentially going against Russia now has really kind of 
thrown a wrench in Serbian-Russian relations. Uh, this is uh, going off the back of Novak winning the Australian Open tennis tournament, and of course his father coming out in support of Russia. So essentially kind of showing that Serbian celebrities, the Serbian people as a whole, do in fact still support Russia, but the Serbian leadership seems to be... Um, uh, for lack of a better word, cucking out here, or which you know we coined the phrase, we coined the um, jargon, the cuck of Kosovo, you know, relating to Mr. Vucic for essentially admitting that hey, Ukraine and Donbass should have should should belong to Ukraine, uh, you know, the, the Donbass and Crimea should belong to Ukraine, uh, you know, basically mimicking Zelensky's statements and mimicking the statements of NATO and the EU, you know, we're not quite sure what exactly Vucic aims to achieve from this, but through interaction with certain Serbian. Uh, folks in the political commentator sphere, that it does seem like Vujic is bending to the whim of the EU and the powers that be, you know, the WEF, the globalists, and some of the even more practical considerations that, hey, Serbia does need to join the European Union soon in order to gain any sort of um, you know, benefits economically before, you know, the, before the recession really hits and goes into overdrive. And it does seem like, you know, Kim Jong-un's sister actually supporting Russia in some ways rhetorically and in a soft sense more than Serbia has supported Russia. Maybe, and I don't mean Serbia as the, the people, but it's the Serbian political leadership. It does seem like it, there's a bit of a disconnect because, you know, North Korea is uh, still a socialist and atheist nation in a way, but it does understand the current uh, layout of the world. And the world is kind of going into this World War Three stage. And of course, North Korea needs to find its its place. And will that place be with the United States? Obviously not. The United States has oppressed the North Korean people for, you know, decades now, you know, essentially segregated the entire nation from the world and not allowed any interaction. So there is this, uh, there is this kind of uh, disconnect here where we have, on one hand, this socialist atheist nation rising and claiming that, yes, we do support the special military operation, we support Putin and the Russian people against NATO and the New World Order. And then you have Vucic, the leader of a Christian nation, which would love to probably say the same and instead he you know falls and fails on that part doesn't represent his people appropriately and perhaps will be outed in the next election for this failure in my opinion well it kind of shows you the power of you know being forced to work outside of the system whereas serbia has always been destroyed so that it can be goaded into the system i think it shows that now north korea for better or for worse maybe you might think it's a cia state like some that's an opinion but it seems to have more independence to decide its own foreign policy and relations in some ways than even Serbia does. So in that regard as well, we want to move towards, uh, there's some stuff going on in Israel. And I believe this was recently said by the new ambassador to Israel to Germany, Ron Prosor, in an interview with Waz Portal, which I believe was a German outlet of some kind. He says, Israel helps Ukraine, but behind the scenes and much more than is known, he claims. Which again, Israel's position on the conflict has always been kind of wishy-washy, sometimes they'll come out with pro-Ukraine statements, then become more neutral, then say they want help with negotiations. But it seems that a lot, especially a lot of these ambassadors to other countries are making it very clear that it seems very obvious that Mossad and the Israeli intelligence is probably helping the Ukrainians behind the scenes, especially in collaboration probably with the United States. And that's something that Russia, of course, is going to have to reckon with, that we've talked about in the past about its patronage of the Christians in the Holy Land. And this comes right after Putin has been seen, you know, still fraternizing with like the top rabbis of of Russia and this big display seems to be trying to still kind of win the support. But unfortunately, it just doesn't seem that that's going to be the final direction that I don't know about unfortunately, but that's just not where Israel is going to go, especially as Russia solidifies its support, its relationship with North Korea, Iran, these are the Syria, 
who are, who are, have truly come out in support and, and Lukashenko, who, you know, he's kind of walked some of them back and said some again, but he's of course made controversial statements about Israel before. So it seems that Russia thinks that it can somehow walk these because of its sheer power in the region can balance it out with Israel. But I just don't think that's how, uh, some of this is going to go down. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, I remember, um, Konstantin Dushenko, the famous Russian you know, political YouTuber, um, on uh, his channel was called Orthodox Russia. And he actually did mention the fact that Putin does have two chief rabbis around, and he uses them as essentially a private red telephone through which he can actually contact the elites in Israel and you know kind of decide foreign political actions. And so he kind of does access Israel through this uh, seemingly uh, you know not through the embassy but through the religious rabbinical order. Uh, you know that the you know Israel has set up two particular rabbi chiefs in Russia, and Putin does speak to them, and he kind of passes on his messages and in private, of course, and none of this really comes out to the press. All we see is Putin sitting at the table of two rabbis, but what exactly they'll be discussing behind closed doors outside, you know, when the press isn't in the room, really isn't isn't given to us. But yeah, Israel and Russian relations will come to heads essentially when Putin does confront the need for protecting Christians in the Holy Land. And he will need to explain to those rabbis, as well as some of the leaders of Israel, that, hey, look, if you guys will continue pressuring Christians, we will take this uh, anti-American stance and implement and kind of, you know, uh, rightfully so, uh, kind of push it onto yourselves, which are, you know, you guys are the main allies of the United States, at least in a, you know, in a certain sense of the United States does provide an exorbitant amount of um, donations and military aid to Israel throughout the years, almost on a yearly basis, uh, billions of dollars consistently. Israel is like the original Ukraine propped up by American taxpayer dollars in a military sense. So Putin actually understanding that in Russia hasn't really criticized that ever. So that is the kind of ace in the Ace in Putin's hand here, he can always, always play that and say, look, uh, Russia will begin tightening its relations with, with Israel if if you guys don't meet our conditions on respecting Christians in Israel at the moment. But of course, the other big news from Israel is the terrorist act, you know, shooting at the synagogue. Um, and we're not still not sure who the perpetrator was. You know, they're, they're claiming it was a Palestinian extremist, maybe some someone that has to do, you know, someone related to Hamas. But these terrorist acts in the Holy Land in Palestine, they do, of course, escalate matters uh, over there and, of course, give excuses not just to Hamas to, of course, escalate rhetoric, but also to the Israeli Israeli military, which I'm sure, you know, as you guys have heard, me and Conrad have discussed this before, the Israeli military is always keen on kind of uh, pushing its boundaries and, you know, acting in domestic, you know, in domestic affairs. Things in Palestine and Israel heating up in general. Hebrew media is now saying if it is proven that Gaza is behind the attack in Jerusalem, the army will launch a military operation against Gaza. And this, of course, is after, due to many expansions and new rushes of settlement to new, you know, abandoned, like, People will go out for a wedding somewhere in Palestine and then a huge busload full of Jews will come and seize the house and occupy it and change the locks and everything. And as more of this goes on, uh, the Palestinians have maybe hinted at a third intifada, which of course would be a big deal. And now if the Hebrew, if, if the IDF is preparing for a full on military operation against Gaza, that could be something that really triggers it from both Lebanon, parts of Syria, as well as of course the West Bank and Gaza itself. So we're going to be watching all of that very closely obviously, as well as how it relates to the geopolitical situation in Ukraine and in Turkey. We have a big guest coming up next week. Not going to say who it is just yet. We'll announce it a bit later. But then later on, of course, we're going to keep covering things going on in Turkey. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the first analysis of our stuff with Haas. I'm going to let Dimitri say anything he wants before we send off, but uh, we've kind of covered all we need to today. Yeah, it's been a quite a fruitful week in terms of you know, discourse and actually exploring 
um, you know, the Orthodox Christian worldview and kind of putting it in, seeing it in contrast with uh, MAGA communism, this new, this new ideology arising in, in the West, you know, from uh, some pretty notable figures on Twitter and as well as YouTube. So there is this, uh, there is this debate you can go have a look at on the World War Now Twitter page. It is all recorded. So do have a listen, of course, with an open mind. Any questions you have, of course, provide them. And um, today, yeah, the analysis has looked at some of the events going on around the world and as well as we appreciate Momsolo coming on and giving his perspective on, you know, on communism as, from an orthodox and geopolitical perspective as well, because communism around the world is still a potential, you know, so it is, you know, the fruits of communism, uh, they are still with us today. The the actions done by communist governments, the communist ideology has in some way shaped the world for better or for worse, and we mostly argue for the worst of the, in the 20th century, it has kind of given birth to this reality, which we now have to kind of digest the fruits of which we have to live with. So uh, there is that consideration. And overall, it's been a pretty, pretty good week. So we'll see you guys in a, in a few days time. Be sure to read Dimitri's article on pacifism. It'll be linked below as well. That's one of our, we're really getting the articles going out. This is a really good one. It's part of a series. I want to also, again, want to thank Mom Chilo. He's one of the most well-read guys I know. So if you need his credentials, you can listen, you can hear that right from me. He's a very smart guy. We'll hope to have him back. And yeah, be sure to also this week, Jay Dyer went on Dr. Steve Turley, which is a fantastic interview. I recommend everybody watch that. But with all of that being said, uh, be sure to subscribe to us on Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. Dimitri's article is up there. It's huge, all free. You'll want to read that. Totally, it's it's really good content. I can promise you that. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Like this video. It really helps us. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore, Telegram, World War Now, T-E-L-E, Tele. And yeah, subscribe to the Substack. It's where most of our stuff is. We're really getting more stuff going here. Follow me on Twitter, GnomeRad. Follow Dimitri at OCanonist. And yeah, uh, we'll see you next time. And God bless. God bless. Have a great week, guys.